Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today we're going into the archive and rediscovering a great conversation with Robert Lukens. Robert has written for publications such as Rolling Stone, Crikey and Overland. In early 2018, his debut novel came out. It was The Everlasting Sunday. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Now, Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER. The Great Conversations podcast is just a baby, though, compared to our weekly broadcast. So today I'm taking you back to the beginning of 2018 with a conversation from our archives. The Everlasting Sunday describes the arrival of 17-year-old Radford at Goodwin Manor. It's the English winter of 1962, a cold snap so severe that it will become to be known as the Big Freeze. Snow blankets the country. Radford is immediately suspicious of his new home and companions and vows to remain aloof. Goodwin Manor, you see, is a home for boys found by trouble. And there is a saying that it only takes two things to get there. A reason and a final straw. Join me as we rediscover Robert Lucan's An Everlasting Sunday. I'm joined on the line right now from Melbourne by Robert Lukens. Robert has written for publications such as Rolling Stone, Crikey and Overland. His debut novel is The Everlasting Sunday and it has absolutely captivated me over the last week. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for joining me on Final Draft. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am... I mean that sincerely. I, I've really been captivated. We were talking off air about how I was. I, this has been a real sleeper hit for me. Um, it, look, the Everlasting Sunday. It, it describes the arrival of seventeen-year-old Radford at Goodwin Manor. It's the English winter of nineteen sixty-two. A cold snap so severe that it will come to be known as the Big Freeze. Snow blankets the country, and Radford is is immediately suspicious of his new home and companions and vows to remain aloof. Goodwin Manor is a home for boys found by trouble, and there's a saying that it only takes two things to get there, a reason and a final straw. Everyone is very, very quiet about their reasons. They don't talk of these things, but as the days lengthen and the the manor is cut off from the world, boredom uh, shifts the mood in the house. A Dr. Cass has arrived to inspect the unconventional arrangements, and it feels like everyone's on edge. I loved as this plays out, and I've actually, I've actually sort of talked about a lot of the plot there because this is. No, that's, that's the best. I've never had to write a synopsis for this novel, and I think you've just done it for me. So um, thank you very much for that. That's awesome. I, I, I'll email you that. Um, <laughs> I actually, very handy. I actually cover. Um, it, it's it's a relatively slim novel. It's it sort of mm. clocks in at just over two hundred pages, and I've covered quite a lot of the action, but I don't feel for a second that I've captivated exactly the mood that you create through your writing and through your characterizations and the internal world that you you delve into. Um, what I'm thinking though, Robert, is I, I think we might actually put a content warning on our chat because I think we're very likely to end up discussing issues and topics concerning mental health. Um, and look, it's, it, is, it is good to let people know that if, if they're worried about that the, these sort of discussions could bring something up for them, uh, look, help is available. You can call Lifeline on 131114, 24 hours a day. Um, having said that, let's let's really jump into the Everlasting Sun, uh, Sunday. The action is set across the winter of, of 1962 and 1963. 
That winter became known as the Big Freeze. It was one of the coldest in the UK's recorded history. And there's this pervasive motif of the snow washing things clean and creating innocence with its blankets of white in kind of popular culture. How did you make this cold and the sense of isolation it creates work for you in the novel? I don't think you were necessarily going for the washing innocent sort of motif that I mentioned, but what did you want from the snow? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, and it's interesting to talk about what these things mean because I think a lot of this stuff to me really comes after the fact. So it's the the winter itself. I suppose the winter itself, the reason it's there. Um, I, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast with um, resolutely British parents and, and British siblings. Um, and as a kid growing up on the Sunshine Coast, seeing seeing photographs in my parents' albums of of the big freeze of the winter of 1962, seeing my grandfather shoveling the car out from under the snow and seeing my father go down the side of the house on a toboggan. These are the kind of the images to a kid growing up on Budrum Mountain on the Sunshine Coast. These are the kind of images that just stay with you for the rest of your life. So I think to some extent that winter exists just as a place that my, my mind reached to when I went to start writing this novel. This novel really was the first time I approached writing um, really from a completely blank page. I went to this story with nothing and I and I let my mind reach for those strong memories and those strong ideas and strong associations and there was something of an untied end in my mind with this winter. Um, and it's also to do with just the mechanics of it. So I wanted a story where I isolated some people. I, I isolated them geographically and I isolated them in time. I wanted, a, I wanted very defined parameters upon which my my story could play out and you know it's almost a i grew up reading a lot of agatha christie it's a bit of an old agatha christie trick isn't it to Mm. um to to trap your subjects in a house and have the storm come in so we can um have their environment become something of a petri dish for them um so to me it was all about that the characters um and the plot to some extent was all really a some kind of natural consequence of the of the world that I wanted to build, of the atmosphere. And so I, I was attempting to kind of integrate this winter and the feelings that would would generate and the and the mechanics of what that would do into the story and the character. So I was trying, trying as hard as I could to have it all be some kind of complete whole so that it all kind of bleeds into each other. So the the, the atmosphere and the characters and the stories all sort of swirl together in a bit of a, a, a grey, foggy atmosphere that uh, would, was quite literal for the story. It's also a horror movie trick to, uh, <laughs> to isolate people and intimate danger. But mm. it strikes me as, as you were talking about that and as, as horror movies sort of popped into my mind that mm. they weren't necessarily my reading. And, and one thing that I think you've done in The Everlasting Sunday that is really wonderful is you've invited the reader to take from it what they will, or, or at least that was yeah. my sense. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I built in a lot of white space into this story. Um, and I think that's for a lot of reasons. I think that's, that's how I like to read. This novel is not about me uh, presenting any kind of answers, I suppose, to some of the, the subjects or the storylines that, that are brought up. Um, you know, I've, when I read, I, I don't want to be sort of presented with some kind of solution to life. I just, I suppose, I want to hear that other people are 
experiencing similar things to me, or even actually if they're experiencing completely different things to me, but just to expose me to some kind of human experience. But but also, I think it's just how I experience life. You know, when we, the people around us, people we work with, even loved ones close to us, we just get the sort of part of them that's poking up through the surface or we get the parts of their lives where it intersects with ours. But there's always that feeling that even with, you know, the nearest and dearest to you, there's, there's this sort of other life going on off the page. And, and that's just my experience of what interacting with other humans <laughs> is. And I suppose I wanted to bring something of that to this story. So there is there is the feeling that there's sort of parallel stories going on at the same time as the one we're presented with and, and that there are characters' backstories and even interactions between characters that are happening off the page that then sort of dip back into the story. And, um, you know, and it would have been very easy to sort of, I guess, unload a whole bunch of backstory about a lot of these characters. You know, mm. I, I, I know I've built these people. I, I, I know all their stories, but there's something, there's that power to someone's story. And you know, that's sometimes the most powerful thing we have um, and a lot of the characters in this story don't have a lot, but what they do have is is their story, and it's a, there's such a power in who you share that with, and to what extent, and when. Um, and I guess I tried to extend that to how I dealt with my characters to the reader. I, I tried to respect the characters and the reader and myself. And I, I suppose I'm, as you said, I'm inviting the reader to step into this space, and I'm not necessarily directing them. Um, to any particular conclusions um, but I've, from hearing from readers people do come to conclusions about a lot of this stuff so I'm, I'm grateful for that There's a beautiful moment towards the end of the book with Teddy that I think you were directly alluding to there but you've brought me again back to horror movies because I feel like uh, thinking- <laughs> it is, Sorry to interrupt but it is funny you say that and, um, I've spoken to when I've spoken to people at my publisher about this, they always tell me, don't mention this. But one of the influences for this novel, in a strange kind of way, um, is the first Alien film. <laughs> Only in an, This novel is not in the slightest bit a horror film or a monster film um, story. But there's something about the... And I think it's the reason why the first Alien film is just is so brilliant... Um, is because so much happens off the screen. There's there's so much of that sense of something happening just outside of your reach, um, and there's something so evocative about that. And I think there's something we all respond to about that. Again, that's that's what life is to me. It's you're in this certain space and you're looking through the fog, and now and again you just see a little glimpse of something rushing by, and you don't always understand where it's coming from or where it's going. And um, that's something I did try and bring to this story. Um, is that idea that we're in this sort of quiet centre of a storm, but around us is this sort of maelstrom, and um, you know we have to we have to cope with that. Yeah. For readers of the Everlasting Sunday who were shaking their heads saying, "Did not see that coming," <laughs> we're going to let them sit with their confusion for a moment because my my thought was actually the way you were discussing the boys' backstories and how you there there are illusions, but you don't. You go too far in fleshing it out and for me the very best horror movies work when we don't see anything other than glimpses mm. of the killer and and very much I think that analogy works for um 
works for the way our past can creep up on us. But I'm going to I'm going to confess we've talked about Agatha Christie, we've talked about <laughs> Alien, we've talked about horror movies. Um, my overwhelming impression as I entered the novel was being on the cusp of some grand adventure, and I'm sure a part of my brain was simply awaiting a likely looking wardrobe or a mysterious door in a walled garden. <laughs> yeah, and look, and you know, and I'm sure all those things. Uh, uh, somewhere in the in the upper strata of my mind when mm. this stuff was was being written, and I, I suppose to some extent, and as as I said, this was a story where I came to a blank page, and for the first, I've been trying to, well, I've been writing novels for a long time, but I haven't been writing successful novels. Um, I haven't been writing novels that have left my bedroom, so um, this was the first time where I sat down mm. and I thought. I've been I've been reading and writing for a long time. I've been trying my hardest at all this, and I wanted to finally have a go at seeing where I'm at. I went to this with a blank page, and for the first time, I wrote in what felt like a completely natural version of my voice, I suppose. And and I let my mind just reach for the reached for what it what it would out of my subconscious, I suppose. And and you know, I grew up with uh, British parents and, and British siblings and I did read Agatha Christie and I did read C.S. Lewis and I did read Tolkien and all these things but I think it's interesting because I'm giving the complete wrong impression about this book because it's, well, that it's, was, it's none of those things. That was my thought is that I, I had this impression going in and I'm talking very, very early pages. Yeah. Then on page 34... You turn all this on its head. Radford mm. acknowledges the boy's own associations and confronts something yeah. far darker in himself. And I, I was so you were aware that you were sort of, I guess, in some way working peripherally within that sort of tradition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I suppose, to some extent, and, and this isn't, I suppose, it's not a, it's not a huge part of the novel, but definitely early on. Um, and I think you noticed it as well. I suppose I, I noticed that at the same time you did as I was writing the novel. And to some extent, I was trying to play with some archetypes, I suppose. And, you know, it's almost a boarding school setup. It's almost, you know, the arrival and the, the chippy friend who he's assigned to to show him around, these kind of things. These are things from Tom Brown's School Days, which is a book I read when I was a kid. They're these sort of archetypes of, I suppose, old-fashioned British boarding school stories but mm. some of those archetypes are there and I, my job I saw it was to sort of set about poisoning some of those ideas mm. and as, as you said trying to, to turn them upside down to some extent but really it was also about just trying to introduce some reality to the situation and, and I suppose it's interesting to me that my mind took to some of those archetypes and I think our minds do go to archetypes when we when we approach things in sort of a an open raw automatic kind of way and then and then I suppose the the cognitive part of my brain kicked in and I decided to do what I do which is I tend to to poison all the things around me so um yeah I'm find I find it very interesting even reading back on my own writing of those parts trying to sort of see where my subconscious and my conscious kind of intersect but um yeah all those ideas are kind of swirling around in there a part of the reality that you mentioned there are the the lives the reasons everything that has brought not just the boys but everyone to goodwin manor and you explore mental health through radford and west's experiences and reaching what well, at least i thought a zenith when with Teddy's departure and return late in the novel. And there's a conversation, which we alluded to earlier, where um, he acknowledges to Radford 
that it is a great thing to know what is yours and this is mine to tell. And he's just, it's, he's, he's talked very obliquely about his experience and how he needed to take some time to rest. We don't, we don't know the origin of this, but I found it really, really lovely. Like just the way Teddy was able to own this and understand it in himself. Now, this, of course, is is at a time in the 60s when mental health did not enjoy the wide conversation we have today. Yeah. What were you conscious of in approaching these relationships? Yeah, it is interesting, too, and I suppose trying to tackle... Um, and, and as I said, I didn't go into this. I didn't have some sort of uh, great themes that I wrote on a piece of paper and pinned on the wall. These are things that I'm sort of exploring in retrospect, but they, they obviously are, are all there. And it's interesting, too, yeah, approaching something set, you know, close to 60 years ago now, um, and, and it's impossible not to look at these things through a sort of contemporary lens. But and I suppose I'm at pains to say as well about this the power of having your own story and who you share it with, mm. uh, particularly for people who perhaps that's one of you know, the most valuable thing they have. It's not about repression and it's not about holding things in or some kind of British stiff upper litmus at all. Mm. <clears throat> There's that great, amazing power in sharing with another person, but I guess it's this idea of the the power that that's something in your command that you choose who you do this with you know a lot of these characters in this story are they're people trying to tether themselves down to the world which is a task we, we all have and, and you know some people are born into the world and and don't have to think about that a lot some people mm-hmm. feel connected to other people or to the world or uh, to a life but if i suppose as happens in this story so if you have connection and if you feel safe to some extent then boy you've you've got a lot you know um and it is about people trying to tether themselves down to the world and you you do it with what's around you Mm. and in this case that's just with each other to for good or bad and i guess to some extent a lot of these characters have come from difficult places and difficult times and that that human need to tie ourselves down to the world around us is present for everyone and it's so strong that you'll just do it with whatever's around you and if you come from a difficult circumstance you'll tie yourself to trouble Mm. and maybe and maybe that'll be something you're dragging around your whole life so yeah it is this idea of just i suppose them exploring these ideas of connecting themselves to each other and and the the power and dangers of that, I suppose. Yeah, there's a stigma that follows some of the boys more than others through the book. I was aware of it as the events unfold, and we very much see it in the character of Foster. I, I also had a consciousness throughout of each of these boys growing into men, which, which, of course, you do play with. And these are men who would be around our fathers or our grandfathers' age yeah. uh, at the moment. Did you have this perspective or this sense of the characters in that way and how they communicate with our world? It's it's interesting yeah. to think of the formidable influence that these they would go on to have, perhaps. Yeah, it is interesting. And <clears throat> again, I suppose because, as I said, this came from a blank page and I just mm. reached for these times. And it's only in retrospect that, I, you know, these characters are almost exactly my father's age. Um, so I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure some kind of... Um, Freudian analysis would um, go to town on that. Um, but again, there is this idea of, I suppose, and it happens in the story and it happens to some extent with the way I told the story, that there's some kind of collapse of time. Um, 
you know, these characters are living out in this what may as well be a little island floating in in any time, really, because of the mechanics of the story that they're trapped in this place. It's set in 1962, but they aren't running around listening to the Beatles and, and you know, getting ready to be hippies. The outer world and the temporal world around them, to some extent, may as well not exist. This story could have been told now or 1962 or... 1762 to some extent um, it's that idea of the past and the present and even our future selves kind of all coalescing together into one point and that's I tried to capture that I suppose in to some way to the language used and even the words I gave these characters to say especially some of the younger characters they probably speak in a way that is probably uh, beyond them to some extent I, th- there is some sort of temporal play I suppose with that is something about someone from the future looking back at events of the past and I think that's just part of this idea that where they are there's just been a confusion of time um, you know some of these these characters have have wisdom and um, whatever the opposite of wisdom is uh, for their age you know there's, there's kind of this mix of things and some of the adults are children and the children are adults. I guess it's that idea that, and I and I feel that in my life, this you know, it, I feel tied to that childhood self, and I feel tied to this kind of future self that I imagined when I was younger. And I think we all feel that. Um, so I, I hope I've given some sense of this like confusion of these ideas that have that have gone into this. The characters Robert is referring to populate the everlasting Sunday. I'm speaking with Robert Lukens. He is the author of The Everlasting Sunday. And if you have a sense of, of something ethereal from our conversation, it is because this is, this is a wonderful book to explore a world, but also characters and ideas. Robert, thank you so much. I mean, as I said, this has become a sleeper hit for me so far in 2018, and it's been great to really get into it with you. No, it's my pleasure, and it's it's a strange part of this debut publishing experience talking to people about these books, and I'm finding it interesting because I'm answering questions that I haven't I haven't thought about these things before, so I'm finding it as as interesting as I, I hope someone finds it vaguely interesting. But um, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Robert Lukens. Robert's debut novel, An Everlasting Sunday, released in early 2018 and is out through University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Click subscribe in your podcast app and you'll get a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.